0: Hello out there to whoever's listening. This is Pastor Tim Dooner of Valley Forge Presbyterian Church, and I welcome you to this third episode of the Winter 2020 series called 2020 Vision. Uh, In this series, we're considering different teachings of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount and asking ourselves if we are seeing Jesus clearly with 2020 Vision. This reflection is entitled, Trading Anger for Reconciliation. I invite you to enjoy and to become centered by a time of quiet and stillness as we prepare to reflect on this together. What I share for your consideration and imagination in this episode is in response to a part of Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> This is from the fifth chapter of his work, uh, another piece uh, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew writes, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, You have heard it said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and... Whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. We're grateful for how God uses his scripture to shape, inspire, and and call us. As we move into 2020, uh, we're playing on the numbers in this series of episodes by asking, if we are those whose focus, work, worship, witness, whose lives, we are seeking to conform to the example of Jesus, are we seek are we seeing Jesus with enough clarity to emulate him appropriately, and fully, and truly? We've acknowledged that if someone has 20-20 vision, the letters and numbers and shapes on that chart that's 20 feet in front of them are crisp and clear, and there's no mistaking what they see. But we know that for some of us, there are a number of reasons why those letters and numbers and shapes are not clear. And what we think we see is not actually what's there. So we're looking at these teachings from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're asking, are we really seeing Jesus clearly, and therefore, based on what he is teaching and saying, are we seeing ourselves and others and God clearly? Or is what we're seeing something else clouded by assumption or bias or desire? So we we have started by reflecting on Jesus' teaching that we're the salt of the earth. We're, we're those who preserve the world like salt preserves food preserving the world as God intended it to be, with our strength, our mercy, our longing for peace. We consider that we, together as a collective, are the light of the world shining for all to see. Our life is to be prominent and public, so that all around us can see us and know who we are, know what we're about, and so that by our life together, lived in this public way, and according to the ways of Jesus, we help the world around us to find their way through the darkness of the world, because our life becomes like a light of life shining. In this episode, we consider another teaching of Jesus, as we ask, have we seen clearly that the way of life taught by Jesus is the way of trading our anger for reconciliation? This teaching is one of several uh, in this sermon, where Jesus starts with a, you've heard it said, and then after naming a commonly accepted understanding, Follows it with uh, what I say. Sometimes Jesus used parable to direct, indirectly challenge the status quo. But then other times like this, he just directly challenges the status quo. You've heard it said that this is true, but I say that this is really what's true instead. So this first, you've heard it said, is that you shall not murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments recorded in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which uh, the scriptures tell us uh, God gave to Moses in order that they might give shape to the life of the Israelites. The second you've heard it said uh, from this portion this, uh, in this episode, whoever murders shall be liable to judgment, may not be as familiar as one of the Ten Commandments, It's a reference to a Hebrew law given by God to Moses that we could hear read uh, from Exodus 21. It's a law that says, whoever willfully attacks and kills another by treachery, you shall take the killer from my altar for execution. There was a law, a prohibition, that was part of the status quo. You shall not murder. And then there was a socially and religiously accepted response to this prohibited action. You shall take that person away from the altar and execute them. This is what you've heard said throughout the ages. This is what you assume to be God's way, the true way. This is what you assume to be socially and religiously appropriate and deserving. You've heard it said. Now, we don't have altars in the Presbyterian tradition. That's that's another episode in itself, but it's it's basically because we don't believe that God demands any kind of sacrifice from us in exchange for God's love and intervention in our lives. And so we don't have an altar upon which we give sacrifices. We have a communion table around which we celebrate the sacrifice made for us. But imagine this asinine hypothetical in which one of the people from our congregation Killed someone else willfully for selfish reasons and then came to give thanks to God in one of our worship services. The expectation, then, based on this law, for the the community of the people who had gathered would be to drag this person out of the building and stone him to death. There was this tragic normalcy uh, to that kind of legalistic judgment and violence. And the status quo of the law, with this exception of when there was a murder, much was permissible in relationships. Slander, anger, prejudice, mockery, whatever. That was all permitted. Just don't murder, is what the law said. But, says Jesus, I say to you, the status quo is not good enough. We hear Jesus add three expectations for us within relationships, which directly challenge that tragic normalcy of judgment, anger, slander, etc. in our relationships. First thing, but I say, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you are liable to judgment. Now, that word for angry that he uses in Greek is the word orge, which is less about an emotional or a reactive response and more about a settled opposition against another. It's not that hot anger that quickly bubbles up and makes our heart beat fast and makes us feel like fighting and lashing out. This is, it's, it, this is more about a calm, continued, settled opposition. I wonder who comes to mind when you think about this constitutional, settled opposition. Who do we oppose continually, constitutionally, because we just think there's no common ground on which to stand and and that it would somehow violate our sense of self to even be in relationship with this person or this group of people. Is it a personal grudge or a fractured relationship that we have with someone from our family or work or neighborhood or or wherever, and we've just decided we're going to be 100% against that person? Is it an againstness that's undergirded by some religious or theological rationale, being against people of another religion or against people of no religion or against people of a different branch of the Christian religion, or against people who we think sin worse than us by our religious definitions and measurements. We've heard it said that we shouldn't murder, but to Jesus that didn't go far enough. Jesus says if we're against anyone, we are liable to judgment. That againstness that we point toward another stands in judgment when held up against what God actually asks of us in relationship with each other. We may think we see permission from our religion to be against atheists or against Muslims or against Catholics or Lutherans or against our own denomination, or against women or against the LGBTQ community or against those who were not born in America. But when we see Jesus clearly, that's not what we actually see. What we see is that it is we, by our anger, who stand in judgment, and not the other. Second thing, what I say, if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. What he actually says in the Greek is, if you say to a brother or sister, raka raka, that's that's the Greek, original Greek that gets translated, if you insult a brother or sister, if you say to a brother or sister, raka raka, then you will be liable to the Sanhedrin, that's the count. Raka is an Aramaic word that means good for nothing or worthless. It's a dehumanizing word. It's a word spoken with arrogance and self-righteousness. It's a word that says, you are less of a human and less valuable to God and to the world than I am. About whom are we tempted to think this? That they're somehow less human, less important, less valuable? To whom are we tempted to say this? You are less than me. If you say this to anyone, says Jesus, you are liable to the Sanhedrin. We see the Sanhedrin later in the Gospels when Jesus is taken to them. They're this council of priests and elders who were the judges within Hebrew law. There were those who would have determined if and how someone broke the law, and if the punishment of a particular infraction was not explicitly spelled out in the scriptures, it was up to the Sanhedrin to interpret and determine a suitable punishment. We've heard it said that we shouldn't murder. Of those who would follow Jesus, more is expected. Jesus says that if we say dehumanizing things about others out from a sense that we're more valuable or important or right, then we are the ones who deserve to go before the council. We may think that we see permission from our religion to be elitist to think that god loves us more than others to think that god's blessings are rewards or acts of god's favor signs that we're the ones who are valuable to god because we're good or we're right and to make the assumption that those who are not us those who don't look speak act believe or pray like us those who aren't from our tribe or nation are therefore not valuable May, we may think we see permission to say raka raka. But when we see Jesus clearly, that is not what we actually see. What we actually see is that we are failing to be as valuable to the world as God has made us to be. We are the ones failing, we are the ones who are not right. Third thing, what I say, if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So that word for fool is the Greek word moros, from which we get the lovely word moron. It means mentally inept or lacking understanding. It was also used to mean godless or impious when describing a lack of someone's spiritual understanding. If we respect the value of the life of another, we don't say raka, But we think that even though our lives have the same value, that our beliefs and understandings are superior, and our response to them is not to try to better understand their point of view, but to call them a moron and dismiss them, then we are liable to the hell of fire, says Jesus. Now, this word for the hell of fire in Greek is the word Gehenna which is a valley outside of Jerusalem where the people burn their trash. We're liable to the the fire of Gehenna, the trash fire. It's a place of uselessness. And in, in this, we hear Jesus' clever reversal. When we call someone else a moron, when we accuse them of having understandings that are useless, and we make that obvious by dismissing their view and making no effort to learn from them, It is not actually they who are useless, but us. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. As Christians, the bar is set higher than don't kill. Are we clear on what Jesus is saying here? We think that we may, we think that we have permission sometimes from our religion to be dismissive of others who think and believe differently. So cloister in isolation only with those who share and affirm our beliefs and understandings, who work together and lobby in politic to make sure that our understanding wins and not the others. But if we're dismissive of someone's religious, political, professional, organizational beliefs or understandings, if we call them a moron either to their face or behind their back, if we think that there is no value to their understandings, If we think that our understandings are superior, it is not they who demonstrate a life devoid of value and are worthy of Gehenna, but us. You've heard it said, whoever murders should be dragged away from this place and killed. But I say to you, if you've committed in your heart with anger to be against someone, if you've dehumanized another person or whole group of people with the thought that their life is not as valuable as yours, if you've dismissed the understandings of another because you don't think their understandings have any value, then it is you who needs to leave this place of worship, says Jesus. What God is truly asking you to do first is not to make your offerings of song or prayer or praise, What God is truly asking you to do first is to go and to be reconciled, to make right what you have done wrong, and then come back here to offer your praise. This is not um, a blanket statement from Jesus about obligatory forgiveness of all those who've wronged us. That would not be seeing him clearly. This is about what we have done to others. This is about our attitude toward others. This is about honestly naming the ways that our own fears, pride, and egos have cut us off from others with anger and grudge, have caused us to discriminate against others with a sense of superiority, and have caused us to belittle, criticize, and dismiss others whose understandings are different than ours. God's mission, God's work, is not to gatekeep heaven nor is it to meet the spiritual needs and preferences of individuals here as though God serves us. God's mission is to reconcile all people and all of creation so that a sense of peace is restored to all, and we have to participate in that. We have to trade the anger, the sense of superiority, and the criticism of others, which is counterproductive to God's mission. We have to trade that for reconciliation which is participatory in God's mission. So who are you angrily against? Is it someone in your family, someone at work, someone from church? Leave here and be reconciled first. Who have you dehumanized by assigning their lives less value with prejudice? Leave the church. Go first and be reconciled and then come back. Who have you dismissed, Call a moron, assigning their beliefs no value, leave, leave the church, go and first be reconciled and then come back. For America to be a city on the hill for the world, the church in America must first be the city on the hill for America. We must not be angry and oppositional. We must not allow fear and a sense of superiority to cause us to condone or participate in the dehumanization of and prejudice against any brother or sister. We must not allow our ego to fuel dismissive partisan shouts of moron. We must seek unity instead of oppositionalism. We must affirm the value of every human life. We must come together and open ourselves to learn from one another with humility When we see Jesus clearly, we say to ourselves and to the world around us, if there is something against or between God's children, first go and be reconciled. That is the gift that God expects us to offer first. So with God's help, may it be so. Amen. May God bless you in your reflection and your prayers and in your living. Take care.